This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. And I'll suck you up and I'll spit you out and I'll play with your babies till you scream and shout. Welcome to this week's episode of Burn It All Down. It's the feminist sports podcast you need. I'm Amira Rose Davis, Assistant Professor of History in Women's Gender and Sexuality Studies at Penn State University. Joining me today is the one and only Shireen Ahmed, freelance journalist, our resident Canadian and all-around badass. Welcome, Shireen. Hey, Amira. It's just the two of us today, and we are, as Shireen likes to call it, hashtag Team Melanin. And while that's in jest, and we definitely joke, it's also real. And Shireen and Shakia Taylor this week actually have a recent piece on the Shadow League about women in color in sports media, or lack thereof. And I highly, highly recommend it. Anyways, we got a fun show for you today. We will be talking Men's World Cup Preview a little bit of update about the Women's World Cup. We'll talk about athletes visiting the White House or not visiting the White House. Plus, Shireen interviews both Jashvina Shah and Dr. Courtney Sito on the Stanley Cup. But before we get started with that, Shireen learned very important news this week, and that is that one P.K. Subin is dating Lindsey Vaughn. I am floored and excited, and I didn't know that I hadn't heard this news. I think I was just so wrapped up in World Cup because, you know, PK didn't text me. So I was a bit thrown off. But wow, what a like, and and they debuted, I think, at the Country Music Awards, if I'm not mistaken. At at the CMAs. So indulge us, folks, as we uh, dive into our favorite sports relationships. Where do you rank this? I mean, this took me by surprise, too, because I was just like, where did they meet? Where did they meet? And I think it's a really interesting pairing because Lindsay Vaughn has been really outspoken since participation in the Olympics about like her disdain for Trump and this. And I just think it's really interesting because PK is not that way. Like he doesn't speak up. He's one of the few black hockey players that actually hasn't, he chooses a more quote unquote diplomatic approach, which I don't understand. And so when I talk to him, this is one of the things I want to ask him because I'm still holding out hope that, you know, he'll email back. He's up there with Tim Tim Duncan, never replies to my media requests. But the thing is, is that in the age of JT Brown and Devontae Smith-Pelly, like, you know, we have these hopes. Now there's Lindsey Vaughn out there who, okay, the connection is winter sports. Yeah, How that's about that? what it is. Yeah. They met in the Winter Olympic Village somewhere. He didn't go to the Olympics, but maybe. Womp, womp. But maybe he was like, I don't know, just, you know, just appreciating her effort and whatnot. In the and snow. Where they yes. met. I need to find out more about that. It's interesting. Well, the other the other fun relationship in sports that we got to see this weekend is Josie Altador and Sloane Stevens. And Josie was courtside as Sloane was battling in the French Open finals. Um, and it was just, I just like, I'm, they're so melanated and cool and like, ugh, they're wonderful. 
I love Josie and Sloan. I also, I'm in Toronto FC. Like, I really want to make him a Canadian. Like, I need him yeah, to be no, Canadian. we can't have him. We've already had this oh, discussion. But I know, <laughs> but like, even my kids are like, the, the only man they can name on the Canadian national team is Josie Altidore. I'm like, <laughs> guys, he's, he's not, he's not Canadian yet. Well, it's funny that you say that because the other couple that I wanted to, like, if we're ranking our favorite current sports couples, like the couple that's at the top of my list, of course, is Sid and Dom. And so, like, again, I totally claim Sid LaRue, despite the fact that she's very Canadian. (laughs) (laughs) So I guess you can kind of claim Josie. Well, I mean, uh, yes, Sid and Dom are another, and their family photos are like up among my the most yeah. adorable thing on the face they're of the earth. They're beautiful and they support of each other and they're playing and like is just incredible to me. So the men's World Cup is just around the corner. It is almost here, folks. So if you're a football fan, this is clearly just a wonderful time of year as the World Cup approaches and the Women's World Cup is clearly on the horizon. So this weekend, France played the United States, who, as we all know, will not be going to Russia. But they met in a friendly right before the French team boarded the plane to go over to Russia. (laughs) You can tell by Shireen's groaning already that this friendly did not exactly go as fans of the French team suspected it would. And for much of the match, the United States, aided by Jeremy's his first name, I might be making. I think it's Jeremy Green. Green. Yeah, he scored. Yeah. Okay, good. Yeah, that is his first name. I know things. Jeremy Green's goal. We're up one zero all the way through seventy five minutes of this match. So I was kind of gleefully watching as the kind of young dudes on the United States team. A lot of them super melanated. We're really bringing it to one of the best teams in the world and also watching like everybody on my Twitter timeline who happens to be French national soccer fans. I haven't worked out how like everybody I follow is, but we're collectively freaking out. Julian Green. It's Julian. Um, Julian Julian Green. Green, So I know something. Is actually the first American to ever score against France. (laughs) <laughs> and this boy was born in 1995 so he's like he's he's five minutes old basically and it's just 1995 that's oh the year i entered university it's pretty incredible but yeah like i remember getting on twitter because i i wasn't at a computer for to see the beginning and i was like wait what and hugo loris who is the goalkeeper just I don't know if he was asleep or he had drunk too much red wine. It was literally, <laughs> and then all the memes came out, like, you know, Loris versus um, Carius, who, as we know, it was um, the goalkeeper for Liverpool in the final, and that didn't end very well because it was on two goalkeeping gaps that, you know, essentially they lost. But it was like, I can't believe it. And someone did point out to me on Twitter as I was, like, being really dramatic that this squad is not the same squad for Team USA that didn't qualify. It's a fresh, young, it's oh, a very, yeah. very fresh. This is a fresh, young squad. This is the squad that they should have put in at least. Like, I'm just, I am I don't know what Bruce Arians, like, I, I have many thoughts about what the U.S. men's national team is looking and going through. But I think that what this friendly showcase is that there is a kind of reservoir of young talent and... I'm at least this friendly made me semi hopeful that it could be utilized in a particular way. They need minutes. They need, you know, time on the pitch. And maybe this, you know, 
friendlies like this will help them so that this is just a kind of transition moment and then they can get back on the world stage, you know, in the years to come. But if I assume, you know, for you and other French fans who are watching the friendly, it wasn't the kind of send off to the world cups that you would have wanted. Well, Giroud actually ended up getting this massive head injury. And I think this is really important. There's a couple of people I, like I call my Twitter football family. One is Laurent Dubois, professor at Duke. One is Zito. He's a writer for SB Nation. And there's a couple more that I follow, Sophia Zab and Sana Qureshi. Just, we have these banters back and forth. But my team hopeful for... Like, obviously, after, like, Nigeria, Iran, Senegal, and, you know, Saudi Arabia, Egypt, Morocco, is, like, for developing nations, like, colonizing nations, is France. And I couldn't believe what I saw yesterday. They were so disorganized. And I can imagine Didier Deschamps, the, the coach, literally, like, freaking out and cursing, because I could, I could picture that. But there's another thought I had that maybe this was a tactic, to make everybody think they suck and then they get to because their draw is fairly easy i mean their draw for the world cup their um, group is not the most arduous they're with like peru denmark and australia and in my opinion peru will be one of the most challenging and and the socceroos as well australia will be challenging denmark i mean i think the women are superior but it'll be really interesting to see what happens it was not like it wasn't a great performance at all so speaking of friendlies, the other thing that happened in friendlies news in, in the last week was that Argentina canceled its friendly with Israel. Uh, Shireen, what are your thoughts on this? Well, I mean, there was uh, conflicting reports because then there's some news started to come out and it said that there were threats against Messi. Um, I don't know who in their right mm. mind, except for Ronaldo fans, right. who might want to do that. but. I don't think like Messi is literally got more armed security than the president of the club of Barcelona. Like he's guarded really well. I don't, I don't know. I do know that the match was supposed to be played on stolen occupied Palestinian land. That's where the stadium is and an old village that was historically wiped out. And, and I don't know. Cause there's, there's some other reports saying that, you know, people are shocked because Argentina has quite a large Zionist community. And people are conflating Jewish community with Zionist community. So, I mean, that's also a really important distinction. Now, in terms of football, I would love someone to dig in deeply to the story, but the Argentine Football Federation is very mum about it. They're not engaging and they're just saying that they're just focusing on the World Cup. So I'm pleased it happened. Do I think it's a success of BDS, boycott, divest sanctions? Not necessarily because I'm not sure and I wouldn't like put money on it. But I do think that this kind of discussion is really important, particularly after what's happening right now in the way that unarmed civilians, including medical personnel and children, are being murdered relentlessly. I mean, this is not something that's going unnoticed. And do politics creep into sport? Of course, because they're inherently yeah, they're, already, they're there. already there. And particularly on the eve of the World Cup, I wouldn't be surprised if there were murmurings in the upper echelons of FIFA just to sort of say we've got to quash this. Because there's a lot of people, a lot of people and very pro-Palestinian countries that are entering the World Cup in bigger numbers. Like you've got five from African continent and themselves, two Middle Eastern countries. So you've got them that are super 
you know, pro, pro-Palestine in that way and like anti-oppression. So it's just, it's the whole thing is I really honestly did not expect it at all. I didn't think that the Argentinians would pull up, but I was very happy to see it. Yeah. And it's so interesting because there's, I always joke, obviously politics are in sports and it just reminded me of, I'll give a, a historical tidbit. In 1948, after the in the lead up to the London Olympics, it was kind of a victory lap for the Allies, and the only Axis power that was invited to the games was Italy. And so, because the IOC wants to cling to the idea that politics and sports don't mesh, they couldn't just say, "Oh, Germany and Japan weren't invited." They had to say, "Oh, their uh, invitations were lost in the mail. They're just we didn't, you know, they didn't get an invite." But the other thing that happened that year is that Israel, obviously, in 1948, became Israel. And the a lot of Arab countries basically were like, if you admit them to the IOC, we're not coming. Like we just finished this long battle. Like we're not we're not doing it. And the IOC was caught between these federations, didn't know what to do. And so what they decided to do was tell Israel that they were not able to come to the Olympics because when they had filled out their paperwork and all of the documentation to come, they had registered as like Hebrew Palestine, right? They had done paperwork in February and in May is when it becomes Israel. So in June, the IOC is like, oh, well, the Olympics start next month, but you can't come because of a paperwork error. So there's all these ways that obviously sports have always been political and these are the kind of links that people go to to separate them and be like, oh, it just so happens that we lost your invite or there's a paperwork error, all this stuff to try to avoid dealing with actual kind of tension and conflict in the global world. Yeah. And I think these historical tidbits are really important and I love that you add them in because God, I learned something every time. But historically there's, there's precedent for this and there's precedent for exclusion and there's precedent for sort of colonial empires to sort of put down like an oppressive regimes actually to exclude in sport, which is really unfortunate, but there's so many conversations about it. So while the focus is admittedly on the Men's World Cup, as I mentioned, it should be noted that exactly a year from this weekend, the Women's World Cup will kick off in France. So far, along with the host country of France, Australia, Brazil, Chile, China, Japan, South Korea, and Thailand have already qualified. And just this week, Italy and Spain also Spain also punched their tickets to the Women's World Cup. The United States, for those who care, will try in October to qualify. Obviously, they are the, you know, apple of our eye for <laughs> U.S. sporting soccer needs. So October, circle your calendars. So as we are getting hyped up about the Men's World Cup, it, we should definitely draw attention to the fact that more friendlies and qualifiers are on the horizon. So if you are a football fan and if you're enjoying the Men's World Cup, be on the lookout for these things because Women's World Cup teams are hitting that one-year period where they're starting to get their rosters together and trying to get their countries to qualify. And it's just, it's a great way, you know, these kind of World Cup years are wonderful. And because we get the Women's World Cup and the Men's World Cup, you know, back-to-back. It's just, it kicks off, ushers in a football frenzy, if you will. Did you mention Canada? I thought I didn't hear Canada in the qualifiers, which we know they'll go. They didn't qualify. Yeah, which is in the fall. But also to be sad, there's suspicion that it would be Captain Christine Sinclair's last World Cup. I know, which is, you know, I, she's a member of the Order of Canada. She is, you know, if one is into awards from 
the empire and whatnot. But she is honestly, I think she should be our prime minister. But the thing is, is that in this process, and you mentioned this at the top of the show, that there's constant neglect to mention that. And this is really interesting. This week, the FIFA Women's World Cup Twitter account actually released a promotional video. It's beautiful for France. And we'll put the link in the show notes. It's really beautiful. But they're pegging the World Cup next year in France as a World Cup, not the World Cup Feminin or the Women's World Cup. They're just mm. calling it, you know, the World Cup, which I think is really interesting when we're talking about gendered language. I mean, the video itself is beautiful. It's really, really well shot. They have a ton of money. And I, it's, it'll be really interesting to see what happens next year in the lead up because previously, Les Bleus, like the, the uh, women's side of the French national team, didn't get a lot of support, even when they were in Canada for the last World Cup. So it, it'll be really interesting. And more locally, I was listening to a radio interview, and I'm so salty about this, on Metro Morning, which is Toronto's largest morning talk show on CBC, a radio show. There was a sports journalist named Nigel Reed, and he was saying that in the lead up to the World Cup, just sort of talking about the excitement, and he's an Englishman, and he supports England, cough, gag, so what he did was he explained that the World Cup, the Men's World Cup, is actually the only legitimate tournament in the world. And I'm sitting there going, and I'm waiting for this man to say the Women's World Cup as well, because the Men's World Cup is not the only legitimate tournament. Of course, it wasn't mentioned. And this just goes back to how often women's football is forgotten in mainstream media conversations which is so enraging like and it happens so casually and all the time so i wanted to say that and i know it's not technically in the burn pile but i just i hate it all yes definitely on that note before we move on i have a very important question for you Sheree. <laughs> yeah please give us your thoughts on this year's official world cup song oh live it up i just saw the video this morning i think it's Honestly, one of the most fun songs. Um, it doesn't have Pitbull, so I'm good. I really do like. <laughs> I really. I was. I can't even get over J Lo and Pitbull. I just. I can't. It was just traumatic to me. Um, so we've got. It's called Live It Up. It features Nicky Jam, Will Smith, and Ira Estreffi. Who? So we've got a Latino, a black man, and a Kosovar woman doing this, and it's. Really, really, really fun. I'm kind of like, could they not get someone more current than Will Smith? Listen, he's making a comeback. He's back in the studio. I hear you there, but I'm kind of like, I don't know. Maybe they could have got Chance the Rapper. I don't know. Like, I'm just sort of like, <laughs> I don't know. So it's fine. Nothing at Will Smith, you know, like, it's all good. But the vibe is fun. And he's a very uplifting, fun person. So I get it. It is no Waka Waka, which I absolutely loved. Waka Waka was really fun. And I also really liked the video for Waving Flag with Kana and the version with Nancy Ajram. Like, I really love that video. So this song is fun. People are saying that the music is deteriorating progressively, but I really don't think we can get much worse than Pitbull and J-Lo performing. <laughs> and I think it's on an uprise, but the hype itself, music is great and it's a fun accompaniment, but the reality is the beauty and the artistry will come from the plays themselves. So we can put whatever soundtrack we want to that. And I'm sure we'll see like GIFs and videos of plays to the Titanic theme. I wasn't expecting it. <laughs> so I'm excited about that. Great. So this week, Shireen sat down and chatted about the Stanley Cup finals 
Hey, flamethrowers. I'm so excited about this interview. We are talking Stanley Cup playoffs with two of my favorite hockey people in the entire world. First, we have Jashvina Shah. Uh, Jashvina is the editorial director for Neutral Zone, where she covers amateur hockey. She first covered Boston University's women's hockey and then covered the men in college. After graduating, she founded a website dedicated to Princeton hockey coverage and also began covering the Big Ten in its inaugural season. We also have with us Dr. Courtney Sito. She just completed her PhD at Simon Fraser University in the School of Communication. Her research explored South Asian experiences in Canadian hockey as a way to better understand the intersections of race, multiculturalism, and citizenship. She is also the assistant editor of Hockey and Society, a blog that examines critical social issues as they relate to hockey. Courtney recently gave me a skating lesson, and I think I did really well, but she can talk about that later. And Josh and I have yet to sit down and have chai with each other, which I'm really looking (laughs) forward to. Welcome, friends. Thank you for having us. Yeah, thank you. Okay, so let's get into this situation. So the Washington Capitals won the Stanley Cup. How are y'all feeling about that? Court? I've been an Ovi supporter since he got into the league, so I'm feeling pretty good about it. If the Vancouver Canucks can't win the cup, and obviously this season they did not <laughs> they did not deserve to win the cup or be anywhere near it, I'm very happy that the Capitals got to, to hoist it. Josh, what about you? So for me, it's kind of funny because I, I grew up a Devils fan, and the Devils, because I was a Devils fan, I hated the Capitals my entire life because there was bad blood between Ovechkin and Marty Brodeur. And I don't know if anyone else knows this story, but it was made aware to me. Like I became a hockey fan right after this happened. But you know how players have visors? They actually used to have tinted visors, but apparently, or is what I heard, Marty Brodeur didn't like the fact that the players had tinted visors, I guess because he couldn't see where their eyes were looking. And he particularly didn't like that Ovechkin had it so because of him they like kind of banned these tinted visors so there's just been like really ridiculous bad blood as there often is in sports between the capitals and the devils but I also like that was a long time ago and my loyalties haven't changed but my perspective on hockey has changed um, obviously because I cover it now and I didn't back then and I have like a couple really good friends who are Capitals fans and just like knowing how good of an athlete Ovechkin is and how much people like to take credit away from him simply because he hasn't won is very aggravating so I'm really happy he finally got a Stanley Cup and I'm happier for two of my really good friends who've been Caps fans since the day they were born and I've watched them suffer. So I'm like, I'm pretty happy for, I'm happy for everyone else, I guess. I personally don't really care, but I'm happy for everyone else. Well, that's good. And you went to Las Vegas to cover some of this, didn't you? So I actually wasn't there to cover it. I was there for my friend's birthday. And as soon as so but like the funny thing was, is I looked at the schedule as soon as the Golden Knights made it and I I would have gone to the game. But unfortunately, they were in DC the weekend that I was there. But it was such an experience. Like, I I personally have like kind of been distanced from the NHL in recent years, I think since the last lockout. But being there kind of like reignited some of that passion because I've never seen a city go all in the way Vegas has gone in. Like everywhere you look, there's Golden Knight stuff. It's like the song you keep hearing on repeat and you don't like it. But because you keep hearing it, you end up liking it. Like that's kind of what happened to me. Yeah, I agree. I was in Vegas recently as well during the playoffs and it was the city is sweating hockey, like literally yeah. sweating hockey. It's pretty cool, actually. But it sounds so bizarre. Vegas and hockey, like I this fairy tale story of like a team 
of players that they called quote unquote husbands getting together and don't get me wrong, Marc Andre Fleury's like the little mascot, the dog. What was his name again? It was so cute. Bark Andre. Oh, Bark Andre Furry. Furry. Okay, that was the cutest thing I've ever seen. And like, admittedly, I was rooting for the Caps. I hate the Penguins just because I'm so disappointed in Canadian homeboy Sidney Crosby and because he went to the White House and I'll forever be salty about that. But anyway, I really liked Ovi. And one of the reasons is because he's like besties with Fatma Al Ali, the captain of the United Arab Emirates women's hockey team. And that story is so cool to me that he just found nothing abnormal about this Emirati woman playing hockey. And she's just like friends with this big bulky Russian hockey player, which is completely normal. So that's kind of why I was going for the caps. And also, you know, just the story of, like you said, how he's not credited and he's a really incredible athlete. But yeah, Vegas hockey, like that's, that's weird to me, just like it was weird to me many, many years ago, many, many, many years ago, when Los Angeles came, like I was there when the Kings went to Los Angeles, like that franchise started. Also Nashville. I'm like, what are these random US towns doing with hockey teams? Like, what is that about? But you're both are saying that the excitement. So in your opinions, and because you were both there, was it, it wasn't the traditional, was it a very like circusy kind of hockey vibe? Like, what was that like? I don't know if I would, how I would describe it. I think for me, the reason I thought Vegas having a hockey team was weird is because of the perception we just have of Vegas in general that like people don't actually, I mean, obviously people do live there, but just because it's like pretty much a city based on tourism. So it's kind of hard to imagine how this team could have a loyal following when it's like their economy is built on people coming and then leaving and not as much, I feel, or the perception for us is that it's not as much built on the people who actually live there, which is why I thought it was strange. I think there are some aspects where it's like kind of circusy. Like I went back to my hotel one day and there was like a right before the game, there was like a drum line leaving from the hotel. And I was like, all right, this is strange and also would not happen in any other city. But I think like it's more just very deeply rooted is how I would say it. Like everybody is wearing Golden Knights stuff. There is Golden Knights merchandise everywhere. I was telling my friends that if I see another logo, I think I'm going to lose it. If you walk on the floor of the casinos, like it's plastered on the floor of the casino it says go like let's go nights or whatever everyone has their fancy like whatever led says what am i saying but like the um h what the what are they called like the display screens i guess outside like they now all say like let's go nights it's crazy and i think like there are a lot of people who are like truly passionate like truly care to see the city to see the team succeed so I don't actually know how much of it I would say is like circusy. I think it's just everywhere. Because the NHL commissioner said that they really wanted to hype this playoffs up NFL style. And of course, I recoil because anyone wanting to emulate <laughs> the NFL is like disgusting. But because they're so problematic. But the thing is, is that part of the excitement about this also appeals to me, like introducing a new swath of fans to a game is great. Like, you know, I was asking Courtney if the fact that the hype in Vegas was so big and a really big deal and so authentic, did that make you nervous as a Caps fan? I think I was there in the the previous round. So it wasn't for the finals finals. I think it was, was it Tampa Bay? No, not Tampa Bay. Obviously they're in the East, but no, I didn't. I don't think it makes me nervous. I think it's nice as a Canadian to see other hockey cities really embracing the sport. I mean, not that it's kind of a weird thing to appreciate as a Canadian, but for some reason, you're like, okay, we're not the only ones that love this sport. 
Yeah, we tend to have, like, I sort of feel like we have this expected monopoly on hockey, which I will forever feel, but that's okay. And, you know, just being, a, being American, I don't fault you for that. But just this whole idea of these rivalries, which speaking of rivalries, I'm kind of glad Amira's not on this call because she's a hardcore Bruins supporter and she and I kind of go at it. So I was sort of like, she's like, no, nah, you go ahead with the interview. And I was like, oh, okay, good. Because I don't want her coming up here bringing her Bruins drama because, I mean, there's so much drama with the Bruins. And I'm a Habs fan, admittedly, and we're also nowhere near the playoffs. So I could unabashedly support without too much emotional investment in this round. And that was fun for me to be able to see, you know, there's one thing I wanted to ask the scores in these games were really high in the finals. Like what's, do you remember those games where it used to be like three, one, two, one, we're talking like five goals. Like what's that about? Do you think? I mean, I think on one hand, the NHL is trying its best and hockey in general is trying its best to like increase the number of goals because they seem to feel that the only way a game is exciting is if everyone's scoring, which is false and everyone knows it's false. I don't know why they still think that, but they do things like they make tweaks here and there to make it harder for the goalies. Like I think a few years ago or a couple years ago, they like very, not a lot, but they like decrease the size of like goalie pads and they do stuff like that. So I think that's part of it. But I also think like it depends on who's obviously who's playing and like the goalies. Like, I don't know if I'm going to get like ripped for saying this, but I think Vasilevsky is a better goalie than Holtby. I mean, Holtby's a good goalie. Don't get me wrong. I just feel like from what I saw of the like leading up to the Eastern Conference Finals, I don't even know if they still call that anymore, but Vasilevsky was much better. I mean, obviously the Devils played Tampa Bay, so I was like watching every game of that series, and I think the Devils could have had a better chance if Vasilevsky wasn't in net. And then like with Flurry, I think he's kind of, when he's on, he's the reason Vegas got there, but when he's not on, it's just kind of like, you know. Yeah, Flurry is, how many years has he been in the league now? A long time. Okay. I remember when he was like, just kind of becoming a thing. Yeah, he's he's old. He's old enough because I remember. So what was your favorite moment of these the entire playoffs? Do you have a favorite moment, Courtney? I mean, I guess just watching Ovi, every time he scores, I always enjoy watching his reactions because he's he just loves to play the game. And he loves to score goals. And I think that we don't see enough of that in hockey because we have this repressed idea of what masculinity is and what hockey culture should be. So, yeah, just watching somebody be like a big kid out there, I, I enjoy that. Jashvina? That's a tough one. I mean, I think like a moment, just like watching the Caps win. I cried when they won because not that I have a personal connection to the Capitals. I just am a huge hockey fan and I have a very deep connection to hockey. So I like I remembered I was in Boston when the Bruins won. I was actually interning for Nesson at the time. And I remembered, you know, I still remember what it feels like when you watch your team win for the first time in your life. And you think it's impossible. You think they're not going to do it. And then they come back and they win. And it's like the most incredible feeling in the world. And I think because of like for me, like the Bruins, I am a Devils fan, but I didn't become a hockey fan until later in my life. So I missed all the Stanley Cups. The Devils won. So for me, the Bruins were the first like, yeah, it sucks. But the Bruins were the first one, like my first hockey team to win a Stanley Cup. So I was like, and I happened to be there that summer. So it was like a really amazing feeling. And I think just like watching 
because it meant so like I've, I've felt lately and I felt when I covered the NHL that it's devoid of a lot of emotion. So watching Ovechkin lift the cup and just knowing all the history that's behind it and how much was riding on it. Like I finally felt a lot of that emotion that I had kind of been distanced from. I felt it come back. So like for me, I don't know if that counts as a moment because it's technically like after the playoffs. But like for me, I think just like watching him lift the cup was definitely my favorite part. It definitely counts. We're not hard and fast on rules with burn it all down. So you're good. The other thing I was going to say is both being women of color in your respective fields and whether it's like just loving the hockey, do you find an increase of women of color and non-binary folk of color getting drawn into a game that's what's absolutely the whitest, whitest sport, major league sport out there? Do you see an increase of people of color? In that, I mean, for one of the happiest moments for me post-win is Devontae Smith-Pally saying that he's not going to the White House. Like, that's something that I'm so excited about, that he's already said it and encouraging his teammates not to go. So for me, that matters. Do you think there's more momentum in there? Personally, for me, I think it's different growing up and playing hockey in Vancouver because... I've kind of been surrounded by women of color who play hockey the entire time that I've been playing it as, as an adult. So I don't necessarily see a growth there, but I think there is definitely a correlation. The better that Canadian teams do, I mean, that the local cities certainly embrace it much better. And yeah, so uh, speaking about Vancouver specifically, we are very finicky hockey city. So if we're not doing well, it's like we've never played hockey before and the Canucks don't exist. <laughs> so yeah, it was it was a tough season to say to grow the sport in this area, at least through fan base. Jashvina, do you think that there's more women and or non-binary folks of color getting into hockey generally? I don't particularly think so. I think that's very hard for us to know just because there are so like, I mean, we think about the other day, like hockey just like likes to not get more fans. And I think just as it is, and especially now that we're kind of really starting to bring out like the underlying bigotry in hockey and like the, a lot of the problems the sport has, it's kind of, we've quietly kind of swept it under the rug. Like now we're starting to bring it out and like have those open dialogues. And I think it's just still like a really hard sport to be accessible. Cause like I love this sport more than anything in my life. And I've loved it for the past 10, like 10 plus years. But even for me, there are times when I'm like, this sport treats people so badly, I should go. So I'm not really sure, honestly, but I would hesitate. I would hesitate to say, yes, I'm kind of leaning towards no, just because I think it's still for people who are minorities. I just think it's still a really difficult sport to follow because it's it can be super unwelcome. Yeah, for sure. I totally agree. Just to add on to what Josephine is kind of pointing out, I think that it's important to know that, especially in Canada, participation numbers for racialized people are generally increasing, which is kind of helping to keep the overall participation stagnant. But we need to be very cognizant of the fact that what we see in grassroots hockey is not the same as what we will see in high performance hockey. So participation is split into two very different pipelines, a poorly funded grassroots program, which in Canada we call the Timbit system, or is better known as the Timbit system. And it's very diverse. It's more diverse than it's ever been. So you can go to rinks in Toronto and Vancouver, Montreal, and it will look more like the Canada that we think we are. But if you're looking at the hockey academy system, and those that are coming out of the system that get to represent Team Canada, it's as 
white as we have been used to, right? So I think when we talk about more people of color getting into the game, it's probably a general truth, but it doesn't necessarily mean that that's the future of the game. So just that's a great point, like kind of piggybacking off of it. We don't have the numbers for USA Hockey, like in terms of like how many minorities are enrolled, but also USA Hockey just hired someone who called a player the N-word many years ago. So I don't really think that's going to go in their favor, but we don't have the data accessible to us as it is. And I, something tells me that I don't, I don't know how much that's going to increase because USA Hockey is just... It's actually the same as Hockey Canada. They don't collect hockey demographics, but we only know this from more like local organizations that a few of them have been doing numbers. So we know in pockets that the numbers are, are changing. But yeah, you're right. There is There aren't hard, fast numbers for participation as race goes in hockey. So just give me your predictions. I know this is early for next year. What do you think? I know it's super early. We just finished the season. I'm going to say Habs because I'm going to be hopeful. And the last time I experienced joy with that team was in 1993. I think you guys were born. I'm not sure. <laughs> but the last time I enjoyed that was 1993. What about you, Courtney? I am terrible at hockey predictions. And my results in hockey pools generally will <laughs> support that. But I'm actually just really interested to see how Vegas does in their second season. I think everybody was kind of taken aback by what happened this year. And the playoff run really drew some eyes. So yeah, I think their sophomore year will be really interesting to see whether it's kind of like new rookies that come in and then people figure them out and it's not quite what it was, what we were thinking it was going to be. So I think that'll be the team that I will watch. Jashvina? That's a good question. Even when I know what players are coming in and what players are leaving, I still mess up my <laughs> predictions. But I think Tampa Bay is really, I think this year I had Nashville over Tampa. I'm actually really disappointed in how Nashville played because they were a much better team on paper, I think, than what they showed up. So I'm going to go with Nashville kind of gets it together. Also, Nick Benino was my favorite player when I was at BU, so I'm biased. But I would pick probably Nashville over... I think I would still stick with Nashville over Tampa for next year. Awesome. Well, we'll definitely have you folks on again on Burn It All Down. I want to thank you so much for having this conversation. You're two of the folks I look to for hockey information and opinion. And everybody you should follow you. Jeshvina, what's your Twitter handle? At Ice Hockey Stick. And Courtney? Okay. At Courtney Cito. C-O-U-R-T-N-E-Y-S-Z-T-O. Cito rhymes with Despacito. <laughs> Dr. Despacito. <laughs> it's my favorite handle. All right. Thanks so much. Love you both. Much love. And enjoy the summer. And then, you know, we're looking forward to seeing what happens next year. Thanks very much, Rain. Thank you. So you may have seen the news this week about the NFL. I, just, I can't believe we're still having these conversations. The Philadelphia Eagles, who were scheduled to go to the White House to meet with this administration and do the ceremony as folks do, were disinvited because the number of Eagles going would have been so small, it would have embarrassed this toddler-in-chief and so they were in an uninvited and it was replaced with a patriotism ceremony that included lots of American flags, people who were reportedly supposed to be Philadelphia Eagles fans, but there's videos, you can check them out, we'll link them in the show notes, 
of people being asked in the crowd who the quarterback was, for instance, of the Philadelphia Eagles, and very, very few people knew. Also, reporters on the ground reported that mostly they were Republican National Committee interns on the ground waving the flags in the patriotism <laughs> ceremony. I mean, the depth, toddler-in-chief who wanted to... Toddler-in-chief, uh, oh my God. ...keep professing all this things about patriotism was were caught on video during his patriotism ceremony um not knowing the words to god bless america so i mean the levels of ridiculous here are just you know beyond but that was not the only news that happened this week the minnesota lynx who were not even invited to the white house in the first place took a page out of the Warriors books and went into DC and instead spent their time in the local community. They washed the feet and gave shoes to school children in the DC area. It was really a wonderful sight to see. And they definitely did their own thing and kind of continued this precedent sent by folks who said, you know what, we'll show you what is really patriotic. Patriotic is helping your fellow citizen. Patriotism is doing work in the community. Patriotism is loving the people who make up this country and treating them nicely. And it's not standing in and doing whatever display of nationalism that you think we should be doing. And then, of course, just this week, 45 also said that the Washington Capitals will be invited to the White House, but there will be no invitation going out to the NBA champions, which is funny because even before the Warriors won, both LeBron James and Steph Curry said it doesn't matter who wins because nobody's planning on going anyways. Yeah, I think that's really, really great in so many ways. I mean... And Steve Kerr is like no stranger to the microphone when it comes to this kind of thing. I mean, particularly when he was very vocal when the whole story broke about immigrant children. I should say when the story broke widely, because people and grassroots activists have always known that children are being detained. But when photos of buses with car seats went viral, like it was horrific. And, you know, his Twitter feed was literally just talking about that constantly. On the subject of like, champions. I saw this photo yesterday that was going around Twitter. Ovechkin, a very, very drunk Alex Ovechkin, and the Caps wandered into a cafe in DC where uh, Jared Kushner and Ivanka Trump were eating. And they got like a picture together or something. And I just was like, oh, come on, Ovi. But people are like, it's okay. He was drunk. So and the adventures of Alex Ovechkin being drunk with a Stanley Cup and kind of touring everywhere are really fascinating. But still, I recoil because just that her presence, her eerie, creepy sort of presence just generally around that. And for me, it this idea of politics and sport not being, I know we know that's not true inherently, but just the idea and, you know, already, as far as the Caps go, Devontae Smith-Pally already said that he wasn't going, even before the playoffs. So he's encouraging his teammates not to go as well, and he's sticking to his guns, and I think that's amazing. And we have to remember, too, that he was part of the Pittsburgh Penguins team that won the Stanley Cup, and he did not go when Sidney Crosby right. took the team. 
Well, you mentioned Kerr, and Kerr this week actually had a really great quote about, he was asked about the Lynx not getting invited. And he said, I think what you're seeing is I think the athletes are showing patriotism through community service. The president is turning all this stuff into a political game and a ratings game. It's a blatant display of nationalism. What patriotism is, is helping your fellow citizen. And whether it's what KD is doing or what we did when we visit Washington or what the Lynx are doing today, that's what it's about. And then he went on to say that he was blown away by the iron of the Eagles being disinvited. When you read about the good days in their community, Malcolm Jenkins addressing lawmakers, really trying to get the root of some issues that we have. And instead, we just have these military sing-alongs at the White House to show how patriotic we are, even though we don't know the world. don't know the words. It's just incredible. I'm really proud of the people in the country who are recognizing what's happening. And instead of turning this into a political game, they're just trying to do good deeds because that's what it takes. Well, it's interesting when you ha- when you talk about this because some people might ask, well, how did we get here? Like, why is this a thing that <laughs> even happens? And I think that is a worthy question. So, you know, there's obviously very long kind of historical roots of doing this. Very unofficially, like you can find instances of sports teams visiting the White House in like 1865, right after the Civil War. In in 1924, the senators visited Calvin Coolidge, for instance. In 1963, JFK welcomed the Boston Celtics. And so there's a long history of this, but it wasn't really until the Reagan years where the practice of honoring championship teams at the White House became a regular occurrence. And of course, we know that through the years, this has garnered more attention. There has always been sports figures who skip visits over the years, um, whether it's for political reasons or they try to avoid saying it's for political reasons, even though it really is. And this has happened through the Clinton years, Bush years, Obama years, and up till today. I think today, because 45 keeps making it a story, it's definitely getting more and more eyeballs, more and more headlines. So my question to you, Shireen, do you have this in Canada? Is this like, is there a tradition of people going to the PM after they win championships? Yes. In fact, we, it's become more prominent with Trudeau, actually, because Stephen Harper did, you know, traditionally welcome champions, like Olympic teams, for sure. I know that Prime Minister Trudeau was the first prime minister to actually invite the Clarkson Cup champions, the CWHL, the Canadian Women's Hockey League champs, the first time this past year. And that was really a really big deal because although like I find him super problematic, particularly when it comes to, um, you know, Indigenous folks. First Nations. Yeah, stuff, absolutely. Yeah. His, his track record is terrible despite, you know, his lip service. I think that it's important to amplify. It's also important to remember that Canada's Minister of Sport and Culture is actually woman and so is sort of on top of that and her cabinet sorry her portfolio and her team is really good about that they invite the teams you know equally it would have been lovely for a canadian team to actually win the stanley cup but that wasn't gonna happen and i hope it happens next year habs go habs go but that and and trudeau (laughs) is i know and trudeau is also a huge habs fan it's really interesting but there is that. I, the Canadian women's national soccer team had been invited. Like he has a Canadian women's soccer team jersey. I mean, the nev- men never go anywhere and haven't been anywhere and aren't going anywhere. So he's 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 not going to have them necessarily. But yeah, there is definitely a history of that. I mean, more so it revolved around hockey. He does meet, go to the Olympic villages and meet the athletes. He invites them. So there is that flavor. It is not, and I will be honest, not 
overtly politically laced the way it is in the United States. It doesn't mean that we don't have mm-hmm. systems of racial injustice. That's not it at all. It just means that they're not spoken of in that very prudish, conservative Canadian manner. Like we absolutely do have those systems. Um, it's not like racism stops at the border, but it's not as political as it as it should be. I mean, sorry, widely spoken of as it should be, in my opinion. Clearly, uh, when we're talking about pay equity, I think that's something that that like is generic to be able to to speak of. But I think that's interesting because for so many years in the United States, it hasn't been even overtly political, even though like you could read into it. But there is many cases of people not you know, agreeing or not getting along with who's in office and publicly knowing that, but still relishing the chance to go to the White House, to CDC, to do it as a team, to get celebrated and recognized. I think what we're seeing, you know, in the last eight to 10 years, certainly um, like when Tim Thomas, for instance, decided not to go when Obama was in office, although he didn't say it was because Obama, he said it's because the federal government was overreaching. It's blah, blah, blah. So, you know, I think it it started becoming more pronounced then, but certainly now it's been heightened so much because it's become almost like a litmus test for athletes. And I think that that has infused attention to it in the way that it hadn't necessarily been. Certainly when Bush was in office, Obama kind of ruffled feathers. But the other thing about it is that both Bush and Obama were very avid, publicly avid sports fans. So that's the other reason why it became, you know, kind of more focused on. And then certainly now, because 45 sees this as like easy bait, like you can easily slap black athletes in particular, like you can easily celebrate NASCAR and, and have them at the White House and say, I know that you guys have no problem standing and being patriotic for the national anthem, right? And always seeing as an easy way to score political points by disciplining and publicly reprimanding black bodies through the NBA or the NFL or just completely ignoring black women athletes, say like the Minnesota Lynx, that this is what has made it fodder in particular. Um, and I think you can see that with even this week with 45 saying, oh, kneeling players, I call on them. They think injustice is happening. So tell me who to pardon. I'll pardon. And that it's just so transparently. It's this week he, he said he was going to pardon Muhammad Ali, who, by the way, does not need a pardon. <laughs> But the idea, right, that like it's the same thing with Jack Johnson, that like you're dead, I can, you know, court good, good press or whatever by pardoning dead black folk, even though you'd be pardoning Muhammad Ali for speaking up in the way that the players who you're admonishing are pardoning that the greatest would need was to once be photographed with Trump. Like that's the only, I mean, (laughs) the other thing too, just on that note, the idea of, I mean, this litmus test that you speak of is so true because previously there's sort of this idea that when athletes are invited to the white house, it's an honor and you're on your best behavior because you're going to something that is symbolically represents all of the United States of America and all people. But what has happened is 45 has made it so that it's inaccessible and exclusionary and it doesn't belong to the people anymore. It's become like his corporate headquarters. And that's where these athletes are sort of drawing the line and saying, I'm not going because it's not it's not for me. It's I'm not part of that. And I mean, don't get me wrong, Bush's foreign policy was terrible. 
But you're right. He was a sports fan and athlete. Still go. And sort of, I think the narrative spun was that sports will unite us. I mean, we saw WNBA being invited to go hang with Obama and that was beautiful. And I mean, in, in Canada, like I would love to see athletes ask Trudeau about missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls inquiry. I would love to see them ask why Indigenous communities don't have clean water. I would love to ask about police carding of young Black men. I would love to see this happen. I would love to see questioning about his support of the pipeline. I would love to see that happen. And hopefully it will because it's slowly becoming even here. And we've seen in Olympic finals, in NHL finals, playoffs, Harper, the former prime minister and the absolute evil, monstrous man, would go to the the finals. There's always a place for them there. So they make these public appearances because, you know, they're sports fans. It's getting to a point where, like you said, athletes are, it becomes a public statement. Am I going or am I not going? And that honor that once used to be there is no longer there. Right. Precisely. And I'll just end it with uh, a quote from some of the players on the Minnesota Lynx. Um, who said, yeah, it's certainly a confusing, and the coach uh, Reeves said, it's a confusing message. It's plain for people to see talking about not getting even invited to the White House. Uh, for us to say that we're not going to let anybody steal our joy, at the end of the day, we don't need the White House to celebrate our championships. Today was a celebration of so many things, including the WNBA. This was literally our players being thoughtful in ways that we can use sports as a vehicle for social change. Now it's time for everyone's favorite segment. It's time to burn some things. You may have seen that Forbes released its annual look at the world's highest paid athletes. And for the first time in a few years, there's no women on that list. Now, the reason for this is mostly due to the fact that Serena Williams, who's usually the top earning female athlete, took some time off, obviously, to have a baby. You also had another tennis player, Lina, who retired in 2014. And Maria Sharapova, who also usually is a feature on the list, is still dealing with the fallout from her uh, suspension for using banned substances. And what this really highlights, though, is that all of these people that I mentioned are tennis players. And really, for the last eight years, any woman who cracked this list in the first place was a tennis player, and it was either Serena Williams, Maria Sharapova, or Lena. And so, really, I think that while you might have seen the headlines and the outrage this week about how women um, athletes, there's no women athletes on the Forbes, the issue goes much deeper than that. It only takes a kind of quick survey over the last decade to see that the only women who were included on this in the first place, were tennis players. And that speaks volumes about tennis being really one of the only avenues to make a sustainable living as a female athlete in this country. The fourth lift is just an annual reminder of how far we still have to go. And I would like to burn that. Burn. (laughs) You're the only one burning. I know, I'm burning. That was an emphatic burn. Torch it. All right, Shireen, what do you have for us? So a little bit of a trigger warning for our listeners, because this I will be speaking about uh, sexualized violence against athletes. So what I'm burning specifically is there were four Canadian skiers, Emily Cousineau, Katie Bertram, Alison Forsythe, and Jillian McFetridge, who had to go to court to lift the publication ban issued by a judge to not release their names 
because they were victims who were abused by Canadian ski coach Bertrand Charest, who abused more than eight women. Now, the other victims include Geneviève Semar, Emilie Frédéric Gagnon, and they are speaking out in hopes of helping, helping other survivors and to guide Alpine Canada to create better policies of safety for these athletes, which include, you know, having parents around at all time, even traveling, etc. So Charest, who is 53, was found guilty um, last June of 37 of the 57 sex-related charges he was facing, and he was given a 12-year prison term. Now, what I'm actually specifically burning of the lengths that these survivors must go to in order to heal and to get a modicum of justice, they actually had to fight to get their names published and be able to speak and identify it as themselves. And so I can't believe that, like, you know, I live in a country that, you know, for all it's worth, really doesn't support victims and survivors of of violence this way in sport or in in any way. And the system is just simply not set up to support it. And it's so hard because in addition to being, as we know, athletes, and we've talked about it on the show constantly, in addition to training and prepping in the mental and emotional work, these athletes were completely robbed and betrayed and violated. And they weren't allowed to speak their truth. So I'm burning that. Burn that shit down. All right. Before we get into our honorable mentions, we at Burn It All Down would like to take a minute to recognize Maria Bueno, the Brazilian tennis great who won three Wimbledon single titles and four at the U.S. Open in the 50s and 60s. She was one of the vanguards of modern women's tennis, and this week she passed away after a lengthy battle with cancer. She was 78 years old. So let's start by shouting out the Florida State women's softball champions who captured the championship this last week. Plus, Coco Goff, who at 14 won the French Open Girls Single Tennis Championship. I watched that match. It was really a sight to behold. She's the youngest to win in like, I think, 20 years. Elise Perry was named the world's best female cricket player in the inaugural survey done by The Guardian. And speaking of cricket, the New Zealand women's team smashed the world record for the highest one-day international score by posting a mammoth 490 to 4 against Ireland, which is a ridiculous score. Writer and Paralympian Martine Wright won Autobiography of the Year at the 2018 Sports Book Awards in the UK. Also, the U.S. women's national player, Allie Krieger, just got a new sports facility named after her in Potomac Shores. And speaking of naming things, the indomitable sports journalist Jamel Hill will deliver the commencement address at her alma mater, Mumford High School in Detroit. And then the school is going to rename the auditorium in her honor, which is pretty, pretty awesome. The retired Liverpool and English national team player, Casey Stoney, has been named the new head coach of the Manchester United women's team. Congratulations to you. And of course, Caster Semenya, who slayed the 800 meters at the AAF uh, Diamond Circuit. And also, she always, you know, is fascinating to watch. And uh, especially since there's been such hullabaloo around her this past year, it's really great to watch her celebrate in victory. Ineola. Aluko and Leanne Sanderson will be awarded the Keith Alexander Award later this year for their fight against racial injustice and discrimination by the Black Football List in the UK. So congratulations to them. And also, there's a 51 team uh, in NASCAR who will have a female pit crew member, Brianna O'Leary, who comes from the NASCAR's Drive for Diversity program, and she will be a rear tire changer. 
But drum roll, please, for our badass women of the world. Okay. It's very hard to drum roll with two people. <laughs> Use your imagination. I'm not doing, I'm not do, I'm not doing that. I can't even do it. <laughs> Like I can't even. <laughs> okay. Our badass woman of the week this week is Simona Halep, who won the French Open and broke her streak. She had gotten to three other major finals, including last year where it looked like she was going to win and then she did not. So after getting to her fourth major and being down, Sloane Stephens was up at in the first match. She lost the first game. She rallied back to take the second and third game. She won 3-6, 6-4, 6-1, and she won. And it was amazing to see her finally have this breakthrough. The match itself was phenomenal. I don't know if anybody woke up early to watch it, but it was just absolutely tremendous. And both women played outstanding tennis. And it's hard, you know, not to be extremely happy for Simona even though how much I love Sloan and even Sloan herself acknowledged it saying, I think she's had a tough journey. I'm glad she's finally got her first slam. It's a beautiful thing. Very special. No matter how hard the adversity that you go through, there's always a light at the end of the tunnel. And I'm glad she finally got her light. And I echo that Simona Halep, you are our badass woman of the week. Yay. What a gracious thing for Sloane Stevens to say, though. Really, really great. Yeah. Sloane is amazing. And she also, at the end, um, when the, during the trophy presentation, Simona looked really overwhelmed when they handed her the trophy. And you could see Sloane like, showing her how to raise her hands and what to do with the cup. And she said, and it was just so wonderful to see Simona celebrate something that's been a long time coming. And it was, I think, a great birthday present to our dear co-host, <laughs> Lindsay. Yay, Lindsay. Happy birthday. We love you. Lindsay's birthday is actually today as we record this on Sunday, June 10th. She's a fellow Gemini like me. And I know that she spent her birthday weekend, you know, traveling and didn't actually get to see the match, but I think she heard it on the radio and I hope she did because it was such a wonderful birthday present for Lindsay, who's such an avid tennis fan. So on behalf of Brenna All Down, with the assistance of Simona Halep, happy birthday, Lindsay. <laughs> happy birthday, Lindsay. All right, Shireen, what's good in your life? World Cup is coming up. <laughs> I realized because the end of Ramadan is yes. also here, and you know I probably should have started with that because we'll yes, be celebrating, uh, God willing, this week. Thank you, love. Um, Eid Mubarak to all of our flamethrowers, either Friday or Saturday. And um, so I'm really excited. And actually, the first match that'll be really intriguing that I'm interested in is Uruguay versus Egypt, which will probably fall on Eid. So all of us will be sitting in Eid prayer congregations on our phones, <laughs> live streaming this game. No, but so I'm really excited about these two things. Joyous. I also had a really great weekend. Uh, the Canadian Sport Film Festival um, is on in Toronto. It'll be uh, today is the last day, but I had the honor of um paneling like chairing the panel of Q&A on the opening night and it's a wonderful film festival I really really recommend our listeners out there to support your local independent film festivals particularly about sports because they talk about the intersections of you know racism homophobia systems of, of oppression misogyny whatever and they tell stories in such a beautiful way so just a shout out to all those independent film festivals and please support them and these filmmakers yeah. 
That's wonderful. So my something good is we got a dog this week. Oh, little dog named Scooby. He's not a quite a puppy. Let's call him a teenager. He's super cute. And it's been a long time coming. My daughter has been literally writing letters. We have a collection of everything that she's written us over the last seven years begging for this. We've gotten her like two robot dogs along the way and all this stuff. So it finally happened for her and everybody's adjusting. And and we also closed on our first house this week. So we're homeowners. So it was quite a Thank you. It was a week for me. I turned 30 on Monday and then we got a dog on Wednesday and got a house on Friday. So I'm I'm adulting and it's something. <laughs> I'm I'm going with the flow right now. So that's my something good. And happy birthday, Lindsay. Team Gemini taking over Burn It All Down. So that's it for this week in Burn It All Down. Burn It All Down lives on SoundCloud, but it can also be found on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, TuneIn. We appreciate your reviews and feedbacks. Please subscribe, rate, share. Also, check out our Patreon. As a reminder, you can give as little as $2 a month to access special features, special interviews. For instance, I have a hot take interview up there right now with Tony Smith Thompson on a 2003 protest during the national anthem and her parallels to athletic activism today. You also can get hot takes and reactions to say the NBA finals, hockey, basically anything that's happening on the world of sports. Jump in there, hear us uh, chop it up with each other about that. Also, we have special giveaways over on our Patreon. So it's a great way to support the pod and get access to exclusive material over there. Uh, you can find Burn It All Down on Facebook at Burn It All Down or on Twitter at Burn It All Down Pod. You can also check us out on Instagram at Burn It All Down Pod. Of course, you can email us at burnitalldownpod at gmail.com. And of course, check out our website, burnitalldownpod.com, where you'll find previous episodes, transcripts, and a link to our Patreon. We appreciate you subscribing and definitely sharing, rating, talking to us, our show. It helps us do the work we love to do and keep burning what needs to be burned. So that's it from me, Amir Rose Davis, and my co-host, Shreen Ahmed. Team Melanin is out. And I'm sorry.